Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we take... Ah, no. I messed it up. (laughs) This new intro is going to kill me. Loser. Hold on. Here we go. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year, and we talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, and you can find our plan there. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're joining us today for the first time, it's January 1st, so we're on day one. But we're you know we're going to do a new thing where we tell you what day we're on the plan. That yes. way you can just jump right in. Yes. Well, and that's the, and that's the trick too. Is this is a new year? It's a new plan. Uh, we're doing a few things with the plan that we're reading. We're going to give you the day so that way you can keep up with us. Maybe you jump in the plan late. We just want to create easy access for you to be with us in in the week's reading that we're on. So you'll hear the day that we're on. So that'll help out a little bit. And as usual, we also like to take questions uh, and take time as much as we can week over week to answer those questions. So there's three ways that you can send us questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Uh, make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question, or you can direct message us uh, on social media. The Facebook we are, I don't know why I always say the Facebook. It's just funny. It's, it's a new a year. Time. I still say it. We're the Grove Church in Washington State. You can direct message us there. Or if you're on Instagram, our church uh, Instagram handle is the Grove CH. You can DM us there as well. Uh, and those questions get to us. So, man, season five. Here season we, five, man. Here, new year. Here we are. New year, new us. I full, full disclosure, listeners, we're recording this before Christmas, so I know we don't. This isn't actually like the new year for it's us. It's because our office is closed down the week between Christmas and New Year's, yeah. uh, and so we we take some time to rest with our families to celebrate the holidays. Uh, but we want to make sure that we're getting an episode out as much as we can. So. Last last year was our first year we didn't miss a week. Except, Except the, the one that, first week of the year. So this year, the plan is, listeners, 52. We're going to try and actually like <laughs> make, the it, goal. make it happen. No gaps. It's going to be rad. Uh, and then this year, we're doing a chronological reading plan. So it's going to be, in some ways, I think it's going to be really cool. In other ways, it's a little bit more confusing. Um, the, we're going to jump around a little bit. So right. that's what we're here for. We're going to try and help keep everything at, moving forward together. So the goal with this plan is that it's going to go through the events of the Bible in the order that they happened. Um, what that means is sometimes you're going to jump out of a book and go into another book. Right smack dab in the middle of that book, you're going to change books. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, this year, I really do encourage you uh, follow along with the U version because it's going to break it down really helpfully there as well. Um, but I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be, so in that way, you know, it's a little bit more confusing, but I think the advantage of it is I think it's going to give us a really cool perspective on the Bible and help us to be able to hopefully see it in a brand new way. So we haven't done a chronological one before. Hopefully you all enjoy it. Yeah, we've never done it. And obviously, if we're doing a chronological plan, that means that we are beginning in Genesis. At Wait, the, what? Just at kidding. the literal creation of the world. The that, very beginning. That is where we will start. Uh, and so Genesis, if, it's, if you don't remember, it's one of the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Pentateuch which literally just means five books. Uh, and so otherwise called the law, like in the Old Testament, when you see, late, especially later on in the historical books, when they're referring to the law, this is yep. the section of the scripture that they are referring to. Tradition, Traditionally, it's said to have been written by Moses. And so the way that I would probably imagine that this happened is the book of Genesis is oral tradition that Moses then writes down. And then he's writing, obviously, firsthand accounts of yeah. Exodus through most of Deuteronomy. There's that part at the end where obviously Moses didn't write, but we'll talk about that when we get yeah. there. Um, yeah. For clarity, Moses was not there at the very beginning of creation, just a heads up. Yeah. Moses is, he's, he, I mean, in fairness, he was he's pretty early. Old. He's early on, in, but he's he wasn't there. 
Uh, and then Genesis actually breaks up into two halves, uh, not exactly in half as far as the book goes, but the first part of the book is kind of like this 30,000 foot view of, I mean, it's literally covering centuries of time in a yeah. few chapters. It's kind of, you know, primeval history, I guess is what we could call it. And then later on, and we'll talk a little bit about this today, it zooms in on one family. So we go from kind of generation after generation after generation, and then we lock in on Abraham and then his son, grandson, and great-grandson follow up the rest of the book of Genesis. So there you go. Uh, we begin with some of the most famous verses of the Bible. And so this is Genesis chapter one. Starting in verse one, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Okay, so there's a lot there's a lot going on here. It's it's kind of interesting when I was breaking it down. I was like, "Boy, you can really kind of take dissect this this just one section of verses a lot." Um so first off, I noticed that the word for God here is Elohim. So it's not the personal name of God, which is Yahweh. Um and if you're ever wondering when you're reading the Bible, the word translated in the Old Testament, the word translated as God is Elohim almost I think it's every time. Um and then when you see Lord in all caps, that's the personal name of God, that's Yahweh. And then so when you see like the Lord God like that, it's Yahweh Elohim is the way it's saying it. So there you go. Elohim is like the the title, like it's the the I guess the way I would put it is my dad's my dad is my dad, which is, you know, the title, but then my dad is also Tom, which is his personal name. So there you go. Uh, and we see that the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters, which was significant as it's an early introduction to the Holy Spirit. So in case you're thinking like, oh yeah, the Trinitarian ideas only come around like at the end of the New Testament, not true. Um, and then also it's significant because the, there's this, in the ancient myths of, uh, of Mesopotamia, usually the way that it went was that there was these primordial chaos waters, and then life kind of came out of that. And so what this is showing here is that God has dominion over those waters as well. Uh, and then finally, I, I just think this is, it's just incredible to like think about for a second. Uh, God commands the world to exist and, and it obeys. Like there's not this, the, the message here isn't that God kind of crafts something that there's like, you know, there's all this goop and then God molds <laughs> it into the world. Um, no, it's, he just says, let this exist. And then boom, yep. it exists. Um, it's called the divine imperative, which just means, you know, the God command, uh, but divine imperative sounds way cooler and more epic. Yeah, exactly. And then these verses make it clear that God has full mastery over all of creation. This is not a, this isn't, you know, the pantheon of the mythic gods where they're kind of battling it out and saying who's going to win. This is just there's no yeah, there's no struggle here. It's yeah. just God commanding things to exist and then they exist. Um, as chapter one continues, we see God create, again, also through all of this is created through command. Uh, he creates the sky and the heavens, the land, vegetation. The sun, moon, and stars, uh, sea creatures and sky creatures, creatures of the land, and then finally man. Uh, and I said, notice here how God says, let us make man in our image and not let me make man in my image. <clears throat> Again, it's another allusion to the Trinity. Yep. Um, you could say that it's angels, but that doesn't make any sense because there's nowhere in scripture that we're told that man is created in the image of the angels. It's, it's purely created in the image of God. I just need a drink of water. <laughs> I was hoping you'd jump in. But, you know, it's, it's well, cool. I wasn't. I wasn't entirely sure. What nah, I, I, this isn't my section. I don't have to say anything. All here. right, all right. I just, you know, I'm, I'm running my voice. So rampant. grab the water next time. 
Just have it in my hand. Yeah. I guess that, that's probably that, That'll help indicate that you're trying to do that. So ah, what are you going to do? This is great podcasting though. Uh, so yeah, you're going to have to cut this out. Ah, maybe we'll see. I might just leave it in, you know, let the, <laughs> let the listeners see our, our, all of our faults, you know, let yeah, them, starting off the new year, let them love us for who we are. Uh, so chapter two turns back time for a sec and it focuses just on the creation of man, uh, man and woman. So God creates the man out of dust and he breathes life into him. And then interesting, this is the first time that we see the personal name of God. So he's described as Yahweh Elohim instead of simply Elohim or Lord God instead of just God. Uh, and then after, obviously, he puts the man back to sleep, takes a bone out of his rib or a rib out of his rib cage, and then creates woman out of that as well. Uh, we're given a description of Eden, which seems to be at the top of the fertile crescent with all of the rivers sprouting from it. Um, specifically, the Tigris and the Euphrates are like, you know, those are the fame, you know, yeah, two main, yeah. main references. If you go back to middle school history, you remember, you know, those two rivers kind of flow out and they Mesopotamia. Create... Exactly. And so we don't know exactly where Eden was, but it's... It seems like it's kind of at the very top of that crescent. It could also be in the Far East, but you know, I think the top makes more sense. It's in that general area. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, who knows? We'll get to find, we'll get to ask after we die and figure yeah. that all out. We might even get to see. Ooh. Uh, finally, we are told that it is not good. Uh, and this is the first time that the phrase is used about creation for man to be alone. So God makes woman. Uh, and Adam rejoices, which you know, makes sense. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so everything is pretty great and it stays that way. And that's the end of the Bible. The end. Just kidding. Uh, so in chapter three, things stop being so great. Uh, Satan in the form of a snake tempts Eve to disobey God's one rule. So the way that God had set it up is essentially, hey, here's paradise. Everything's going to be great. Uh, the only rule is don't eat this. Don't eat the fruit from this one tree. So what do they do? They, they eat the fruit from that one tree. Classic, classic Adam and Eve. Um, and so, yeah, Adam and Eve were set apart and then they desired to be like someone that they shouldn't. And so this is kind of like, a th it's a theme that we explored a lot last year. I think it comes up here again, because what's the whole thing? It's what's the temptation that Satan offers? He says, oh, you'll be, you'll be just like God. Yep. And they don't, they, they shouldn't want to be like God. They've been set apart. Um, and yet they want to be like God and it leads them into sin and temptation. Just like eventually that will, that same thing will happen with Israel, but we'll talk about that in a few months when, when we get there. there. Yep. Jinx. Uh, cha yep. Chapter four. Oh, sorry. They, I, I skipped right to chapter four, but I guess I should say like they eat the fruit. Yeah. They <laughs> and, eat the fruit. Yep. And then they're kicked out of the garden. Um, there's curses laid down upon them and upon the snake. And then essentially they have to go toil out in the world yep. and the, their, their paradise is gone. So chapter four gives us the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, so first, let's not skip over how mind-blowing it must have, given, must have been to give birth to a human. Uh, I, I don't know. This is just something that occurred to me while I was reading it. Two dudes are speaking about this right now. True. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> that's fair. But, uh, well, I guess we publicly announced it. So I get I get to see this in a few months. My yeah. wife, yeah, my wife is expecting our first. So that'll be really fun. Uh, I So I didn't mean that in, ten, in terms of like, imagine being a woman. <laughs> I guess I meant that in it terms of It just was funny. Like, I'm like, you're like hey, we can't skip over this. And I'm like, yeah, we're two guys. We have no idea what it, what it means to give birth to a, that's to a fair. human. I'm, but, think, I'm thinking more of Adam and Eve were not they were not ever babies, mm -hmm. right? They they just it seems like they are just fully formed and yeah. God makes them. And so now uh they themselves are making new humans. So I yeah. think that's just a, that's just a powerful moment to imagine like yeah. just yeah, just think about that for a moment and imagine what that would have been like to see birth 
as a concept for the first time. Kind yeah. of interesting. Uh, so the brothers are Cain and Abel. Uh, both bro- brothers offer sacrifices to the Lord, but Yahweh favors Abel's uh, offering over Cain's. In his jealousy, Cain kills Abel and Yahweh rebukes Cain. However, uh, Cain is allowed to live and has a family. Uh, let's not think about where the family comes from, but you know, I mean, back then there's just no other option. So I guess it is what it is. Uh, Adam and Eve also have more children, which is interesting because in the genealogies, well, we'll get to that later on. But, you know, Cain is not mentioned as the child of Adam and Eve. It's actually the third child that's born. That's Seth? The, no, I believe Seth. it's Seth. It's Seth. Yeah, Seth. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, we'll come back. Oh, yeah, we'll come back to Genesis 5. That's a big old genealogy. We'll come back to that later in this episode. That's a little teaser for the end. Uh, Genesis 6 gives us a picture of the constant problem of mankind, the growth of corruption and sinfulness. Uh, we are told that God regretted making man, and I put don't don't skip past that. Don't miss that. Uh, that's an incredible statement to say that God looked at what happened with mankind and says, yeah, this was a, this was a bummer. I, I wish I didn't do this. Um, and God decides that he's going to destroy all of mankind except for one family. Uh, so let's talk about them for a little bit. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had been corrupted, or all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end for all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You know, I don't even actually know what gopher wood is. I should have looked that up. But yeah. <laughs> it's wood. Uh, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters onto the earth to destroy all flesh in which... Uh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. That's a thing that's going to keep coming up. So uh, don't, don't, don't skip past covenant moments uh, and shall come and you shall come into the ark and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds, according to their kind of, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to, to you and you keep them alive. And also, and also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did as all as God had commanded him. So there you go. In chapter seven, the flood comes. Uh, Noah and his family take shelter inside of the ark. And after 150 days, the flood subsided and the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat, which is in modern day Turkey. Uh, it's on the eastern border of Turkey, fun fact. And you can see it from Armenia. I only know this because I've been really obsessed with a YouTube channel that has geography fun facts. And I watched the Armenia video the other day and I was like, oh, who knew? Uh, so Noah's family is fruitful and they repopulate the earth. However, not everything was hunky-dory. So this is in Genesis chapter nine. I just so, love that you put hunky-dory in your notes. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good time. Uh, it says, Noah began uh, to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, hmm, Canaan, 
wonder if that comes up later. Uh, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a, took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered their na- the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest sons had done to him, or his youngest son had done to him. He said, "Cursed be Canaan." Yeah, that probably comes up later. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Oh, snap. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Oh, snap. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. So there you go. We will talk a little bit more about the sons of Noah later on today. Uh, but, you know, just to let you, you know, Noah's, you know, not a perfect guy. And uh, Ham also, come on, come on, bro. What are you doing? What are you new? Ugh, making fun of your dad like that. Uh, so finally, to wrap up the 30,000 foot section of Genesis, we get a story about the Tower of Babel, which is really interesting. Uh, here we see once again that people have rebelled against Yahweh, just like the garden uh, just like the garden, the command doesn't make much sense. Why can't we eat the fruit? Why do we have to disperse, right? So I put that down because there's kind of a theme in early Genesis where even if the command doesn't really make sense, it's the fact that God has said it. So like, if you're just kind of looking at it, like, I, I don't know, objectively is the wrong word, but like, why, why can't I eat the fruit? That's dumb. Why is there one fruit tree that I can't eat? Why not just have, not have the tree there? Well, that's the way God built it. Uh, I'm sure the people of Babel were like, well, why do we have to disperse around the whole world? Like, why shouldn't we just stay here and build massive monuments? And so, and again, like from a human perspective, yeah, it doesn't really make much sense, I guess, but that's the way it is. That's the way God commanded it. Uh, Yahweh, and it's, it's just kind of this theme that Yahweh created the entire world to be inhabited by humans not just ancient Mesopotamia. So, and we, and, you know, a lot of us know the story. They build up the tower. It goes super high. God eventually rebukes them and he comes down and he scatters their languages so that now they can't understand each other. And so the people form into pockets of people who now speak the same language and they disperse. They go all throughout the world. So there you go. We also get, uh, this is just a fun fact, but we get the, the we get, we get told of Nimrod, who is one of the first great Kings of the ancient world. He is a great hunter. Um, and when I say the word Nimrod, you probably think of, you know, an idiot. Uh, and I didn't know this, but the, that is a very recent thing. That hasn't always been the case. It started with Bugs Bunny in the 50s. Um, but the reason it starts is because, you know, Nimrod means mighty hunter. And so when Bugs Bunny is taunting Elmer Fudd and calling him a Nimrod, he's calling him a mighty hunter. But because no one is very, not no one, but people aren't very biblically literate. They don't get the joke. And so it just became a word that means idiot instead of, uh, you know, the mocking, basically sarcastic mighty yeah. hunter word that it was. So well, it doesn't, go. it doesn't help that, uh, Elmer Fudd's not the most brilliant acting guy. Yeah. He, he, he appears and has the guise of an idiot. So. Right. Well, yeah. Bugs Bunny is sarcastically calling him mighty yeah. hunter, but yep. anyway, there you go. Uh, we're going to break into the second half of Genesis, but before we do, we do want to take a second to ask if, uh, you know, hey, if you could leave us a five-star review, that'd be super helpful. It gets the podcast out there to more people. We're believing, like I said, we record this before Christmas, so we're believing in faith that we reached 100 reviews on <laughs> Apple Podcasts. Uh, who knows? But if you leave a written review, we will read it on the podcast, just like... Our new friend, Carol, the soul sister. Uh, that's so rad. I... I she just, she was jumped in our podcast. It sounds like right about the Isaiah timeframe. So she wrote this uh, after giving us a five star. She says, so appreciate this commentary in the book of Isaiah. Our Bible study is getting ready to do a study on Isaiah and his commentary 
is very informative, insightful. Uh, I love digging into the Word of God with you. Uh, so, Carol, thank you for that review. Thank you for jumping in and being part of the, the Let's Read the Bible podcast community. Um, as Evan said, we're sitting at about 96, 97 uh, ratings right now with po- Apple Podcasts. Um, it'd be fun to come back in the new year and see we've hit 100. But um, that's awesome. I appreciate it. And also Spotify, you continue to grow and and continue those ratings. So thank you for those uh, ratings and reviews. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Uh, as Evan said, uh, this is where we shift from 30,000 foot and we actually start zeroing in on more of the narrative about specific families, specific plans, and God speaking specifically to people. Uh, and so in Genesis eleven ten to 25, we we see the story of Abraham. We follow this man, this man named Abram, whose name starts as Abram. Uh, and then there's a shift later on to Abraham. Um, ha. Ha, ha. What? Get it? Because there's an H-A that's ha, ha. added. Yeah. Uh, good effort. Thanks. Uh, but we find uh, God's redemptive promises focuses on one individual at this point, Abram, which means great father. His name will change, spoiler, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Uh, he has a son, Isaac, uh, who Isaac means son of promise. Uh, and so it's just kind of a fun, like there's an incredible narrative portion. I'm just be honest with you. Th- this is for me, some of the fun sections of the, of, of the Bible, the scripture, uh, because it's narrative. So it's really easy to track and follow and, and stay in tune with when it starts shifting to genealogies, which we just got out of at this point in the reading plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but it really was strategic in helping us understand and get us to the point of Abram specifically. Uh, chapter 11, verse 10 focuses on the genealogy from Shem to Terah, which is Abram's father. Uh, and so you'll see, read that, uh, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so and the like. Um, so don't skip over it. It's it's intentional. Uh, and I think we said this in Matthew last year, uh, but it, it shows the validity of this actually happened. Like it's yep. not it's not just happenstance or like, hey, we're going to throw out a bunch of names out there just for the fun of it. But it, it really is to solidify in a historical account, this is this is, this is is the lineage, this is the genealogy, and this is a legitimate and, and accurate person. Uh, so... Chapter 11 gets us to Abram's father, Terah. Chapter 12, we see God's call to Abram to leave the land of his family and go uh, eventually to Canaan, uh, although at the time he didn't know where he was going. Uh, And so this is a significant thing. I'm going to read this in chapter 12, the first nine verses here. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. We hear this phrase, by the way, all throughout the Old Testament. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him, which Lot was his nephew. Um, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, or Sarah, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all his possessions they had accumulated and the, pe- and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land and to the side of Shechem, the oak of Morah at the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Remember Canaan? Go back to what we just talked about with Noah, uh, the one who was cursed. He's going to be a servant. They went into the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7 says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west of and Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. And so we see this, this, this significant moment where God shows up to Abram, says, hey, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be the father of, of many nations. I've got a plan for you. Now go. Uh, and Abram goes without knowing where he's going to end up. He just goes as he as the Lord leads him. And he ends up in Canaan, which is, I, I actually have, I, it's been a while since I've picked up on this and remember this, but 
early on, before there is any pr- talk of promised land, before there was any talk of, of great provision, Canaan was that land. Uh, and so Abram had already created an altar. He had gone there, created an altar, a, a moment of remembrance, and also to signify that this is uh, this is my land. Well, I guess, yeah, we should interject that when we say Canaan, we're talking about what will eventually be the kingdom of Israel and is located where modern yes. day Israel is. So if Correct. you're wondering, like, where in the world is that, that is where we're talking yes. about. Uh, so we see that in chapter 12, his call, uh, first nine verses. We see it, then the, it shifts where there's a severe famine, 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 famine in Canaan and forced Abraham to go to Egypt, uh, where he lies to Pharaoh out of fear and, and preservation. This is where he has this moment. He's like, "Hey, Sarah, you're pretty. You're pretty good looking. They're gonna want. Uh, they're gonna want to take you as their own wives, and they're gonna kill me. So say you're my sister." Uh, and so he says this to lie to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh takes Sarah into his into his house. God curses or you know, afflicts Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, "What just happened to me?" He calls in Abraham. Abraham's like, "Yeah, I lied to you. I'm sorry." Uh, and so we see in chapter 13, Abraham and Sarah, Sarai, I don't, I, I say Sarah, but it's all, we, you know, we know who it's how I say, uh, they're expelled from Egypt at this point because of their lying. Pharaoh was mad at him. Why would you do such a thing? Get out of here. Uh, so Abraham retraces his steps, heads back to Negev, located in the hill country between Bethel and Ai. So in the same general area that he was originally, uh, he had, where he'd built that altar to remember God's promises. Um, and then comp- competition for the pasture causes a lot and Abraham's a split. So because they've accumulated livestock, they now have pastures and their flocks and their possessions are in competition where it may not be able to sustain both flocks. So Lot gets his first choice and takes the fertile land. So Abraham lets him go into the valley, the fertile land. Uh, and so we see that separation happen. Uh, in chapter 14, we see a, a side note conversation of Lot for a little bit. They separate, Lot settles in Sodom, uh, which many of us who've read the Bible understand what happened in Sodom, but it's not a bad place yet. Uh, so Lot settles there, ends up being taken captive uh, because there's so many, because uh, it was such a fertile land, the Jordan Valley was, that people wanted to take over it. They want, there was high value. So they amassed forces, a bunch of kingdoms joined together captured uh, Lot and his family. Um, and then Abraham hears, or Abram, sorry, hears of Lot's captivity, musters a small force to pursue and rescue Lot. And here we meet Melchizedek. Uh, great name. It's a great name. And we see this, his reference into to Hebrews, where it actually is, it says Jesus is the great, is the great high priest. He's greater than, he's in the, I think in the line of Melchizedek, he's greater in the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think that in the first episode of this year, we're going to talk about Melchizedek, and then he will not come up again <laughs> until <laughs> towards the end of the year. Yep, probably uh, we'll probably be going through Hebrews in December. Yep. Uh, so this is what it says in Genesis chapter fourteen. One of the survivors came. This is when Abram's told about Lot. One of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew who lived near the oaks belonging to the Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. They were bound by treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and all his, all his relative lot and his goods, also his relative lot and his goods, as well as the women and other people. After Abram returned from defeating... Oh man, I should have looked this one up... Whatever. That's a hard one. Yeah, it is. Chitalormor. Anyways, the king uh, and the kings who were with him, in essence, he defeated the, the the conglomerate of kings who joined together. I think there was five of them. Uh, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shiva Valley. Uh, that's the king's valley is another way to say it. In verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest to God most high. And this is interesting because it, it, this isn't, 
Melchizedek is not a, a king of the Israelite population or of a set apart. This was before any of that had been established. God was starting to establish his, his people through the line of Abraham. Well, I think it's an important thing because the the Bible is, especially the, the Old Testament, but really pretty much all of it, is, is written by the Jews. It's written by the Israelites. And so it's a very um, Israel-centric document, which is not, you know, no fault. Obviously, that's the story that you're going to tell. Um, but it's important to note that there are sometimes we have this idea that only the Jews worshiped Yahweh in, in the ancient times. Well, that's not true. Like we get Melchizedek, we get uh, Job is a famous one, uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who is yep. a Midianite. So all throughout, we get this idea that, oh, it's, it's not just the Israelites who are worshiping God. Um, and then later on in the New Testament, we hear about God fears. In other words, it's kind of these Gentiles who also worship Yahweh, but they're not Jews. They're just, yeah, Gentiles who worship God as well. So it's kind of interesting how uh, we we need to make sure we have a kind of a broad, open mind, I guess, to the people groups that actually worship God. Yeah, and then the, and then it finishes up in chapter fourteen. He blessed him and said, "Abram is blessed by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, and be blessed by God, be blessed or blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you." Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Uh, a little fun side note: that's the first time we ever see any response to God's provision in tithing. Uh, we see here in chapter 15, God covenants with Abraham at this point, where God promises to be his shield provider. Uh, and Abram shares his concern with God, that with God's promises and it hinges on having a child of which he currently has none. Uh, and so God reaffirms his promise to have a child. So you see in chapter 15, God will, will come to Abraham. He will, Abram, he will promise again, remind him of the promises. Hey, I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your provider. Uh, and Abraham's like, hey, that's a great idea. But um, all of these promises you're giving me hands hinges on having a child. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Sarah and I, we don't have a baby. We don't have a child, Sarah. And they're getting old. Remember at this point, he's in his seventies. Um, and so age was a little bit different back then, obviously. Um, and after the flood is when we saw in scripture, God reduced the, the lifespan of humanity. Um, but there still is a significant point that he, they're older in age. Um, so God recommits the promises, reaffirms a promise actually. And then uh, Abram kind of has this conversation with God. It's not happening. Chapter 16, we actually see Abram has a child with Hagar, uh, which is the servant of Sarah. Um, and Abraham and Hagar have the son Ishmael, uh, which actually then creates hostility between uh, Hagar and Sarah. Uh, because now all of a sudden Hagar's looking down on Sarah for not having children, but she has a child with her, with her, I guess, Sarah's husband. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this hostility. So then all of a sudden Abram gives, <laughs> gives Sarah, treat her however you want to. Sarah treated her harshly and long story short, she'll flee away. God still promises some type of provision and, and land and future generations to Ishmael. Well, and uh, Ishmael eventually also goes on to hunt sperm whales. It's a little Moby Dick, Moby Dick, yeah. Moby Dick joke. Yeah, that wasn't funny. It's hilarious. Um, so we see this this tension exists. Abram tries to take God's promise in his own hands. Uh, has sleeps with Hagar. They have Ishmael. Uh, God again creates a covenant with Abram in chapter seventeen. Um, this is where his name is changed from Abram to Abraham. It's the act of circumcision is is a symbol of his promise, um, and then the promise of Isaac. And so, uh, chapter sixteen, Abram tries to take care of his own tries to fulfill God's promises on his behalf through having a child uh, because he knows in order for God's promises to be fulfilled, it hinges on his uh, having a son. So we see chapter 17, God shows up, doesn't rebuke Abram, but just reminds him like, I'm going to provide for you. You will have a child out of your own 
uh, between you and your own wife, uh, circumcision is going to be the sign of my covenant. You'll have, and I'm promising the son of Isaac. Uh, chapter 18 and 19 shifts for a moment and we see the destruction of Sodom. Uh, this is where we see Abraham negotiate. Um, again, this is where Abraham's name was changed last chapter, but we see him negotiate and rather intercedes with God for, for, uh, for Lot. Um, and God ends up rescuing Lot. This is the, this is the crazy sequence where God's like, okay, what if there's a hundred people? What if there's 50? What if there's 10? What if there's one? Uh, and Please God's Lord. like, God, God's like, okay, I'll relent if there's 50, if there's a hundred. So at the end of it, God rescues Lot and his family. Uh, his daughter and his his sisters. It's this crazy sequence uh, of depravity that happens and exists in Sodom, where the men and, and the boys of Sodom show up to Lot's house because two angels of the Lord came to the town where Lot saw him, brought him to his house to provide hospitality. Uh, and the depravity and the the fallenness of man is existing in the men coming to the house and wanting to to take advantage of them, wanting to in essence rape them right. and show their dominance and authority. Well, I think it's like it's interesting to me too because this passage gets echoed. Bol, bol, I think there's two themes of this story that get echoed later on in the Old Testament because there's a theme of kind of trying to make a deal with God, I suppose, which we see happen a few times. Um, most, not most famously, but I think most funnily, I suppose that's not a word, but in the most fun way, it's with Ezekiel in the cooking over dung. But there's other ones in there too. Um, what I think is really sad though is you look at the way that the people of Sodom treat. Lot and treat his guests, um, which is the, the angel of the Lord. Um, that gets echoed in Judges. Yep. And what's really disturbing about that is that it's an Israelite city that has essentially become just like Sodom. So we won't talk about that too much here because obviously that's going to be later. But yeah. it is, uh, yeah, it's scary to think that this is not the last time that these themes will come up. Yeah, as it's, we read. it's it's unfortunately tragic and difficult. Um, but it's it's this crazy sequence that we see in chapter 18, 19. And then we find at the end of chapter 19, this moment where Lot is is housing the angels of the Lord uh, and these men and boys are surrounding the house. And then Lot says, hey, I had two daughters that have not been with a man yet. Take them and do whatever you want with them. It, it shows culturally the the tension of property, that women were viewed as property in, in the culture and the times of ancient biblical history. It doesn't mean the Bible affirms that, but it just means that this is the reality of the culture at the time. Uh, and so... In this moment, you see the angel, God, you see the depravity, you see where, where God was coming from. Like it's so fallen, it's so evil, it's so, it's so disgusting and gross and, and, and bad that God's like, I'm just going to get rid of it. Or I'm going to wipe it off the face of the earth. Um, so sinful, I guess, is a way to say it. So, Well, I think we talked about this a little bit last year as well, but what we see in Genesis and particularly the early Old Testament is not like, it's not that God says, you're now my people. And then they are instantly transformed yeah, into like, oh, these are the Jews of Jesus's day. Like, no, like he is taking a um, nomadic, barbaric people mm -hmm. and he's slowly, God is slowly making them into his people. But yeah. we see like that in that instance there of saying like, oh, here's my daughters and he just throws them out there. Um, that's a barbaric thing to do. Yeah. But that's kind of the, not, not the point of it, but that's something that's showing us is that Lot is not what we would think of as a mature Yahweh follower. Yeah, so he, true. Yeah, he is kind of just, he's a, a man of his culture, I suppose. Well, yeah, and I think that that's, again, it's its indicative of like the promise God was making to establish the people was with Abram, right? Lot went, went on his own way, was captive, capti, cap, captured. Captivated. <laughs> captivated. You're welcome, Kathy Ramsey. Um, but he was captured and was a product and then was rescued and then started establishing, but he was then inhabited in a land with barbaric hordes and people. Uh, so you see this, this tension. So all of that to say, 
angel of the Lord will protect Lot. He pulls them and de- delivers them from the city, Lot and his daughters and his wife. Um, and he ends up becoming the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites through a, again, not, another crazy situation where after Lot is delivered, they go to a cave because he's afraid of being around people. I mean, that would be very traumatic, just to be honest with you. This is where Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt because she looks back as the angel of the Lord instructor, don't look back, just keep running. Uh, so the sulfur and, and it, the Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Uh, Lot's wife looks back, turns into a pillar of salt because she disobeyed what the angel of the Lord had said. Lot and his daughters are hiding in a cave uh, and Lot's daughters have a conversation among themselves where they are unwed. They have yet to be with man. There's no there's no son to continue on the name or the, the heritage of Lot. And so they said, let's get our father drunk. Let's both sleep with them and become pregnant. Uh, Lot gets drunk. Both his daughters sleep with them. They become pregnant. And then this is where he becomes the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites. So you see the birth of two people, two groups of people that we'll, we'll see in different sections throughout scripture. That's what I love about Genesis is you begin to see where these people are established from, where they come from. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lot becomes those fa- the father of the Moabites and Ammonites because of his daughters sleeping with them. Uh, chapter 20, uh, we see uh, a story that uh, can seem vaguely familiar, uh, but with different characters. Uh, but alas, it's the same. King Abimelech sees Abraham and Sarah. Uh, again, Abraham's name is changed. Sarah's name is changed as well. Uh, and because of the lie, again, sounds like we've seen this before, uh, that they are siblings, King, the king takes Sarah and the Lord afflicts him. So they show up into a territory king, they say, Abram, you think he would have learned. He says the same thing to Sarah. Hey, you're good looking. They're going to want to keep you and kill me. So say you're my sister. So King Abimelech sees, oh, you're his sister. Awesome. You can come hang out with me in my my chambers. The, the Lord afflicts them and they are called out for it. Why would you do it? Abram's called uh, to King Abimelech. Abimelech's like, why would you lie to me? He's like, well, I was afraid you're going to kill me. I was afraid you're going to take Sarah and kill me. Uh, but here's the thing. His, he's not turned away. Rather, they're giving blessings and provision and land. And this is what it says in chapter 20, verse 14 to 18. It says, then Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and returned his wife, Sarah, to him. Abimelech said, look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, look, I'm giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of, of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated, which is a significant thing because if you remember in Egypt, and I never, I don't know if I've ever picked this up before, but in Egypt, they were kicked out and expelled. You can't be here. You afflicted me. Get out of here. Ah. But with King Abimelech, he was like, why would you do that? Don't lie to me. Here, let me help provide for you. Settle on the land you want to settle into. My land is your land. Um, so then Abraham prayed to God. God healed Abimelech because Abimelech was afflicted at that point his wife and his female slaves so that they could bear children. Uh, for the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So it was su- such a significant moment where God afflicted again, King Abimelech. Abimelech responded in humility, like, why would you do that? Here, how can I bless you? How can I provide for you? Please pray that this doesn't happen anymore. And Abraham prays and they're able to have kids again. That's fine. I'm just imagining Abraham like in a meeting with a pastor and just being like, oh, I'm, I'm just struggling with sin. And the pastor's like, oh, what are you struggling with? It's like, I just keep telling powerful people that my wife is my sister. Because <laughs> I don't know why, like you said, why didn't he learn the first time? This is just like a, this is just a thing that Abraham does. Like he just like, I don't Fear know. and preservation. He, he gets really afraid. He's like, oh, that's uh, my sister. Don't even, yeah. don't even worry about it. Uh, so then we see in chapter 21, Isaac is born the son of promise. Um, and it's, it's really cool too, because even in Abraham's uh, own attempts to usher in the promise of God uh, and the the pariah that Hagar and Ishmael becomes, God still protects Hagar and Ishmael. Um, 
And so while Abraham has Isaac, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, God still protects Hagar and Ishmael. Um, Abraham makes a treaty with Abimelech uh, at, at Abimelech's request because Abimelech realizes um, that God has been providing and protecting Abraham. And so out of respect and recognition, Abimelech initiates this, this peace treaty. Abraham submits to the peace treaty. We see Isaac is born. Uh, chapter 22 I would say this is probably a very infamous chapter that many of us don't know about because we're very, very clear about understanding what happens. If we've grown up in church for a long time, if you have it, that's okay too. This is a phenomenal chapter with a lot of messianic uh, allusions. Um, but this is where Abraham, who has just seen the fulfillment of God's promise to have Isaac um, as a son, was then directed to sacrifice Isaac as a test to his faithfulness. Um, we see a small genealogy section in chapter two, 22, uh, which then it's interesting. I didn't know this either, but it, it divides Abraham's, uh, story up a bit. Uh, sometimes they're used in literature, uh, ancient literature to, to sh- almost like, it's almost like a chapter break. Here's a story. Isaac is born. He's directed to sacrifice Isaac or Abraham follows obediently. And what I say that there's messianic, uh, implications here is Isaac willingly lays down his life. He has wood strapped to his shoulders for the fire. Uh, He asks his dad multiple times, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham's response is the Lord will provide. They go up in this Mount, Mount Moriah, I believe. Um, And Abraham creates an altar. And then he looks at his son and his son is to be a sacrifice. And it doesn't tell us that Isaac willingly laid himself down, but he's a teenage boy and he submits to his father and I, I would imagine he could outrun his dad at that point because how old Abraham was. All of that to say, I think Abraham was, he was over hundred at that point. Abraham was going to sacrifice angel or the voice of the Lord as Abraham has this knife getting ready to come down and kill his son as a sacrifice to the Lord. God says, stop, don't touch the boy. They notice a lamb, a ram, a lamb, a ram is stuck in a thicket. They use that as a sacrifice. Um, and it really is, it's, it's, it's a testament to the righteousness of Abraham in trusting and obeying God, no matter what. Um, and it's a significant moment because we also see the future lamb of that is Christ lay down his life on, on wood, which is a cross. Yeah. And so we see these, those illusions play out. Yeah. It's really cool that God provided a sacrifice when there wasn't one. Yeah. Huh. Go figure. I wonder it's if like that, we would see that somewhere before. If that ever comes up again. Um, so let me see that, that genealogy section, which kind of takes a break, shifts the story a bit. Uh, that genealogy mentions Rebecca, which is a precursor to the next section, of part of the story. Um, but before we get there, we see chapter 23, Sarah's death and burial. Uh, starts at the beginning uh, of the end of the story. This is starts at the beginning of the end of the story for Abraham. Uh, he buys a cave for burial, which his descendants will have access to. And this, I didn't know this before. I didn't think about this before. Um, but buying the cave in Canaan and the promise, the future promised land cements God's provision that, of the promised land being given to his people. Because the moment he buys that cave, it now becomes access to Abraham and his people and his, his sons and his descendants. Uh, and so there's this incredible moment that as I was reading, I was like, oh man, I never thought about that before. That even before the Israelites grew in, in force and population, even before that they were uh, uh, capt- captive or even before they moved to Egypt and then became slaves in Egypt, even before they went the, on the journey that's coming in Exodus, God had already provided in that moment, the significant plot of land that would identify this is my, this is my land. Um, and I thought that's such a cool moment uh, to see that so early on, God was providing for his people. Um, Chapter 24 starts the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Um, as Isaac, Abraham is coming to the end of his life, 
Uh, he makes his servant promise to find Isaac a wife uh, from his family, not from the foreigners he's living around. Um, there's this uh, under the thigh covenant. It's like this agreement, which is always interesting. I remember as a college guy, we like inner thigh covenant. Yeah. Um, but it's a legit thing uh, because when you put your hand under someone's thigh, which is this is ancient history, right? When you put your hand under someone's thigh, so the servant puts his hand under Abraham's thigh. And it, it was carries, warm. It was warm. It's just like my hands are <laughs> under my thighs right now because Evan likes to keep this room frigid. Um, but it carries the symbol of su- submission to one's authority and strength. In other words, a servant is saying, I'm under your authority. I'm committing to whatever you command me to do. Uh, so after that go- agreement is made, the servant goes to the city of Nahor, finds a relative and a bride in Rebecca, who's the daughter of Bethuel. Uh, so we see this in chapter 24. So this is the, the servant's prayer to God as he arrives in Bethuel. It says, Lord God of my master Abraham, he prayed. Make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I'm standing here at the spring where the daughters of men of the town are coming out to draw water. That the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so I may drink. And who responds, drink and I'll get water your camels also. Let her be the one you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebecca, the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor coming with the jug on her shoulder. Now she was a very beautiful, a virgin. No man had been intimate with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jug and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water from your jug. She replied, drink my Lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her, to her hand and gave him a drink. When she, had, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have had enough to drink. She quickly emptied her jug in the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. She drew water for all his camels. While the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. As the camels finished drinking, the man took a gold weighing, gold ring weighing half a shekel and for her wrist, two bracelets weighing 10 shekels of gold. This is a dowry. Uh, so the story goes on that he finds, he talks to Rebecca, he goes back to Rebecca's dad uh, and you see uh, the provision of God for Isaac uh, and the he talks to Nahor. He gets the the permission, the freedom to bring Rebecca back so that Isaac can have a bride. Uh, and it's just this incredible faithful provision of God's continuing to protect, preserve, and provide for the lineage and the genealogy of Abraham. Uh, so we see that in chapter 24. And then in chapter 25, we in the in verses 1 through 18, we see uh, the details of the death of Abraham. Uh, this is where his, in essence, uh, you see the end of his life. This is this is the section of Genesis that's then closed. Um, Abraham, uh, you'll see the, the this detail will also refer to his descendants, uh, and then as part of that, that's almost like a last um, a last hurrah of of God's faithful provision for Abraham throughout his life and fulfilling the promise of Isaac and the descendants. So, and that's concluding Abraham's life. Yeah. Next week, we'll talk about some other descendants of Abraham. So that'll be really interesting. Uh, but we do have another section today. This begins our brand new segment, a new introduction to season five. And that is, of course, listeners, fan favorite genealogy jargon. <laughs> so basically, yeah, this is just, you know, it's it's my way. It's our way of trying to make some of the more boring parts of the Bible fun to read. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the genealogies that we read through this week. And there was a bunch of them. And I just, you know, we just kind of read through them. And then I just kind of picked out some highlights, some things that I thought were interesting about each of them. So, Well, and if you're anything like me, when I read a genealogy, I skip over it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> I, I quickly peruse it and I don't give it much thought beyond that. It's true. And so here we're, here, here's the deal. We're here to change that this year. We're here Ooh. to take some of the parts that maybe we want to skip over and see what we can glean from 
them. So without further ado, Genesis 5. So this is the genealogy that takes us up to Noah. Uh, So right off the bat, it's really interesting that it highlights the fact that all of these people were created in the image of God. Uh, that both men and women were equal image bearers of Yahweh. So that's what it says right at the beginning. In, the, in his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So those are two really important points. Because yes. in the, um, we, we talked about it with the story of Lot, right? It's a very male-dominated culture. Just across the world, basically, at this point, is that's the way it's working. And yet, uh, Scripture is very clear in this point that both men and women are equal image bearers of the image of God. Also, I think it's really interesting because this genealogy is talking about this, the slow descent into the sinful wickedness of the people, right? Because remember, God looks out and he sees, oh my gosh, these people are the worst, and he sends the flood. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that the genealogy that starts off with the the Imago Dei, which is the the image of God, is the one that talks about essentially how it just keeps getting worse and worse until God decides to, decides to kill everyone. So even the people who are sinning, even the people who are uh, wretched are created in the image of God. Uh, Adam's son, Seth, is born. uh, It's the same language that's used, so in his image and likeness. So when it describes Seth, it's saying that he is also in Adam's image and likeness, which I think talks about the way that that's how God feels about us, and to to a certain extent, where the way that we look at our children um, is the way that God looks at us. So I think that's really cool. And like I said, uh, Abel and Cain, I mean, Abel for obvious reasons because he died, but Cain is not listed as the son, the first son of Adam. It's Seth who is listed. Uh, the men in this genealogy are incredibly long lived. Um, perhaps, perhaps starting out with such a small group, God in his mercy allowed longer life to prevent, uh, to basically to bolster the population. Because obviously if you're dying at the young ages that we typically see in the ancient world, you're, it's going to be pretty hard to maintain a population. So cool, true. cool beans there. Uh, we're introduced to the first two men in the Bible that we are told do not actually die. Oh, sorry. The first of two men. I was so, going to say, uh, there's only one. Uh, yeah, the first of two men we are told don't explicitly die. We'll talk about one in uh, in a few months. and He'll be a little wild on the road. But the other one is we meet here. It's Enoch. Um, we All we're told is that he walked with God and that God took him. We don't actually know much about Enoch. Yeah, there's, not, is, there's not a lot said about Enoch. The other person who doesn't die... I guess spoilers, whatever. It's Elijah, right? We know a lot about Elijah. Yep. We don't know very much about Enoch. Uh, so I thought it was kind of interesting. Noah's three sons are in this uh, end this genealogy, which is interesting as it was only concerned with one son from each family before this. So it wasn't like we were getting the full family tree. We're just being told the eldest sons of each one. Uh, but it ends, and this is kind of the it's the marker showing that, oh, this is over because it's showing Noah's three sons, not just his firstborn. Uh, and then I thought that I never heard this before, but it is possible to conclude that Methuselah died the year of the flood. Hmm. Um, and so Methuselah is, if you're like me in Sunday school, he was a trivia question because it's who's the oldest person who ever lived? And it was Methuselah at 969 years. What's interesting is that he outlives his son Lamech by about five years. Um, and so there is like, basically there's some speculation that he is, he dies after essentially everyone. And so there's a thought that what he might've died during the flood. Interesting. Which, you know, I guess I in my head, I always pictured Methuselah as like, he's a cool guy, but I guess, you know, maybe not. Maybe like he's he could, not such a cool yeah, guy. Yeah, I guess he could have been wicked. It makes sense because the rest <laughs> of the people are. And you know, when you're a kid, you just view everyone. Like the one that always sticks out to me, always sticks out to me 
is how Solomon is a good guy when you're in Sunday school. <laughs> and then like when, once you like become an adult and you start reading, you're like, oh no. Wait he, a minute. He was like a really bad king, but. You suck. In Sunday school, all you know about him is that he asked for wisdom that one time. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's true. There you go. All right, next genealogy. This is in Genesis 10. And so if the first one takes us up to Noah, this one takes us out from Noah uh, into the next bunch of generations. And so Japheth's sons have a couple of interesting names in there. So Gomer, um, I mean, that just comes up later in Hosea, although it's a feminine name there, which is kind of interesting. Interesting. Uh, Magog, I thought was really interesting because this is the famous, I shouldn't say famous, he's not famous, but uh, the it's in Revelation and in Ezekiel, I believe, is Gog of Magog. Um, and it's kind of this represent, representation of the evil um, the evil people. So there's Magog there. So that's the first mention we have of it. And then Tarshish is a grandson. And so you'll remember Tarshish is the city that Jonah tries to flee to, but he uh, doesn't quite get there. But we'll talk about that. When we get there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ham's son. Ham's sons also has some, uh, <laughs> some interesting names. Uh, we have Cush, Egypt. And Canaan, Sheba, and Nimrod both being grandsons. Uh, Nimrod builds both Babel and Nineveh. So I wonder if those cities come up later. No, not at all. <laughs> and then uh, Canaan's descendants also build Sodom and Gomorrah, which we talked about and their destruction earlier in this episode. Uh, and then Shem's descendants include us. So of Job fame, that's where Job's Yeah, you from. can't forget about Job. Yeah, he's from the land of us. Um, there's obviously, there's a bunch of other sons in there, but those are the ones that kind of stood out to me as like being really interesting location names. Uh, Genesis 11 gives us Shem's descendants directly. Uh, this is because Abram is in Shem's line. Yes. So it's kind of cool that that is the son that is chosen to, uh, um, to have Abraham in his descendants. Yeah, well, I think it's important too, to, uh, even going back to for a second to... Uh, the genealogy is we're talking through like Shem and the, like the locations. Remember when, even as we just talked about when uh, Abraham's servant went, went to Nahor, the, the region was titled after the patriarch of the main guy who lived in this space in the ancient times. So when we see Cush and we see these names, oftentimes the territory be, assumes the name of the right. original person who, who, the nomad who lived there, who made it a home. So that, that's an important thing. So that's why some of these names are important. That's why if we stop and slow down to the genealogies, it'll actually help provide a little bit of clarity as as you see the the modern day in Old Testament kind of unfold. So Yeah. Well, it is just crazy to think about just how much time passes between all of this as well. Absolutely. Because you have basically all the nations of the world at this point are, are moving. By the time Abraham gets to Egypt, Egypt is already just impossibly old. Like, yeah. I was thinking, I was doing the math in my head when you were talking. Um, but by the time, a- when Abraham is in Egypt, the great pyramids of Giza are further away from him than we are from like the founding of the US. So just to kind of give you an idea, which is crazy because obviously they're like, they're, they're, I mean, the one that always gets told is the uh, Cleopatra lived closer to the invention of the iPhone than she did the construction of the Great Pyramids. But it's just kind of like, it's crazy to think how old those are. Yeah, Uh, Genesis 25, so this is out from Abraham. And the main takeaway here is that Isaac is the favorite son. Uh, We'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. This one, I I don't know, it's one of those things like, it's probably because I skipped genealogies, but uh, Abraham Abraham has another wife. So it's Keturah and she bears six sons, one of whom is Midian. Um, So I think that actually makes a ton of sense then. as to why we later on we meet Jethro, who is a Midianite. Yeah, he's a Midianite. They worship Yahweh. So there you go. And there's yeah, I had no idea that Abram had had a third wife. So classic, stinking Abraham. classic Abraham move. 
Um, and then Ishmael... Well, it's not Solomon. Yeah, that's true. Ishmael settles in the land of Egypt, uh, which one day the Israelites will wander through, which I thought was kind of interesting. So it says he's directly east of the land of Egypt, which would be that's uh, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula or the Sinai Peninsula as well. And so that's where the... Uh, um, that is where the Israelites are going to be wandering. So kind of yep. cool there. Uh, and then finally, First Chronicles 1. If you notice in our reading plan, it's almost all Genesis. And then there's First Chronicles. And you're probably flipping to First Chronicles. Like, oh my gosh, what story happened back in this time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Psych. Tricked you. It's genealogies. Uh, so the genealogy here focuses on pretty much the same information. Um, however, here we are told that Keturah, so this is Abraham's third wife, is a concubine. So she is the same level as Hagar, um, which is a rung below Sarah. So Sarah is kind of the official wife with Hagar and Keturah being concubines. Um, yeah, it's one of those things that it's funny because it's described in the Bible all the time. It's never praised. It's never like, this is a good thing, but it's uh, it just happens a bunch. Fam- also famously with Jacob, right? Because we have Rachel and Leah give birth to, I can't remember how many of the sons, but obviously Rachel gives birth to two. And it's, it's Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon. So Leah has six. And then Rachel has two. And then the rest of the 12 sons of Jacob are born of concubines as well. So including that apostate Dan. Come on, Dan. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, but that's it. So yeah, it, it focuses on much the same information. Maybe a little bit more information about Katura there. So that's fun. But that, that was genealogy jargon. So yep. hope you, hope you enjoyed it. Chronicles. We'll do, uh, we'll do a couple more of those sprinkled throughout the year. And that brings us into our next new, new segment. Section. This one is going to be an every week segment and it's going to be... Our application. What do we learn today? Aaron, why don't you start? Yeah. So I think just a little quick thought from before we jump into to think. One of the things that we were discussing is we're just dreaming about how do we continue to develop and strengthen the podcast. Um, and sometimes I feel like uh, when it comes to discipleship, we don't just want to talk about the Bible. We just want to also talk about the challenge, uh, like what are we taking out of it? And so as Evan and I read through, as Evan and I prep for the podcast, we want to bring in just a simple application point that isn't all encompassing, but it's like, if, here's one thought that stood out to me that I think is worth remembering and wrestling through or processing through. Uh, and so we'll each take a time in, in the podcast to, to hit an application point uh, just as a way to encourage and help each of us continue to walk better in our faith and our walk with Jesus. So, um, so the thing that I would uh, say is probably a really uh, simple but powerful application point is um, is going back to Abram's life, obviously, because that was the section I kind of walked us through. Uh, but the very thing that pro- that was promised to Abraham, God fulfilled, but then required to be sacrificed. So I wrote this sentence um, uh, as a simple, like, challenging thought, even as I was wrestling through, like, there are, there are, the beauty of this segment in Abraham's life is it showed the allegiance of Abraham's faith was to God himself, not the provision of a promise or the gift, so to speak. Um, and, and I tried to, I have, I'm a, I'm a dad of three kids. I know Evan, you're uh, on the verge of becoming a father. Uh, you still have, you know, a handful of months, obviously eight, I think ish, six, six and a half ish, whatever. End of June. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's building and it's coming, but there's something about being a dad that if I was promised a son, I mean, so I have just for, you know, I don't know, transparency's sake, I have a, a daughter who's nine, a son who's five, and a daughter who's two. Uh, so part of me, like, I love the fact that I have a son. I love the fact that I get to to be a boy with him, and he does all the boy things. He wrestles. That's all he wants to do is wrestle. His name's Gideon, which actually means destroyer of high places. Uh, his name fits him very strategically. He likes to destroy a lot of things. Love that. Um, 
not like intentionally break him, but he's just so physical and strong. And all of it to say, if, if God were to say, hey, I want you to give me your child. And, and granted, we're not in ancient times, so I, I don't think that there's a way that God would actually ask that of anybody today. Hey, go kill your, your kid um, to just be crass with it. I don't mean it to be, to be insensitive, but like there are things that, that I don't know if I could do. I mean, Abraham's story, he, he was promised this son. He sees the fulfillment of the son. The son is growing and becoming a young man. And then God's like, hey, by the way, I want you to take that, co- that kid that I promised you. In essence, the other side of it is Isaac represented the fulfillment of nations, of people, not just the promise of a son, but also the promise of becoming Abraham, the father of multitudes, not just a great father, which is what Abraham meant. Um, I, I, and I just wrote this simple question, like, would our response be the same as Abraham's? When it comes to the provision and the promises that God has given us, are we more married and committed and connected to the promise, to what we've been given, to uh, the fulfillment of of what God has done, or is we are we trusting in unabashed obedience to who God is, and are we willing to lay down everything for Him? I mean, that's that's the in essence is mm-hmm. the filter, right? And I, I I think I was talking to you, you know, today this podcast is dropping on January first. I'm speaking. Uh, this morning, or I would have spoke this morning, depending when you're listening to this podcast. Um, and the, the tension I'm wrestling with is this idea of like, as Christians, it's it's we're called to follow Christ, not just be, be a Christian by label, but to follow Christ to our death. Mm-hmm. Because that's what, that's what Jesus did. He modeled a life of sacrifice. He modeled a life of generosity where he gave everything up so that we could be reconciled back to God. Um, and so the, the question that I have is like, would we be in the same filter and the same response as Abraham was with the, the promise that God gave him, what am I holding on to that I'm unwilling to let go and, and lay at the altar and say, God, you can take whatever you want, which sounds so like Christianese about it. But I just think that there's a layer of is my, is my hope and my trust anchored to the one who gives the promises or is it in the promise themselves? Because if it's in the promise themselves, it falls, it fails and it, it, it leaves us wanting, but when it's in the one who gives the promise, who's sovereign, all-powerful, who's the almighty God, who's Jehovah Jireh, all of those things, then then that's where I think sh- true strength and faith and, and, and growth and maturity in Christ comes. Uh, and so the question is simply like when it comes to Abraham's life and how he modeled, would our response be similar to Abraham's? So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, my application was, it, I, I wasn't expecting this to be the case, but it honestly was from the genealogies. Uh, I just thought <laughs> in that first genealogy, I was very much struck by the fact that it begins with, in his image, he created them, male and female, he created them. And and basically, it's just the whole idea of, um, of all the genealogies that we see in the Bible, these might be the worst people. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like the other ones that we see, at least there's like a lot of like highlights and stuff like that. But what we see in this genealogy is theoretically just the um, the descent into godless sin and idolatry to the point where only Noah is the yeah. is the only one who's walking with God at this point of the entire population of the earth. Um, and yet, all of those people are described as being image bearers of God. And so, do we treat people like that? Do we treat the people that we run into? every day as if they were created in the image of God? Um, do we actually view people as if they have their own lives, as if they have their own, you know, their hopes, yeah. their own hopes, their own dreams, their own triumphs? Um, I was talking with, this was a message I shared a few, it was like six months ago now, but um, my wife Ashley and I, we got to go to uh, Europe for vacation. Um, we went to London. And so we were in uh, this place called Trafalgar Square, which is basically just like this wide open, you can see thousands of people walking around. 
Um, and it's going to make me sound like a total sociopath, but like I was, <laughs> I was watching people and it just struck me in that moment about how like each and every person of these like thousands of people, all of them were just like me. Like they all have hopes and they all have dreams and they all have their own lives that they're living. Mm-hmm. And I think so often we kind of view, um, uh, yeah, we almost view life as if like, it's a story starring us and then yeah, everyone, absolutely. everyone else only exist insofar as they relate to us, which I know none of us would ever say that, but I think sometimes that's the way that we think. Sometimes that's the way that we live our lives. Yeah. Um, and so this genealogy here, I love the fact that it goes out of its way to say that all of these people are created in the image of God. Yeah. And I think it's a convicting thought for us today of, do we treat people like they are created in the yep. image of God? So there yeah, you go. The people is driving with you in a car, the people on the highway with you, or maybe you're right. at your house and you're, it's family or extended family. Like, it's, it's even as you hear that, I would say like, begin to look at the people that are around you. If you're a people watcher, maybe you're listening to this podcast. If you're isolated and you're on your own, that's fine. But what about the people you're going to interact with or cross paths with? Like begin to see them in that light. Because I remember you were sharing this with me months ago when you, after and, and processing out oh, of the right. trip and things like that. And it's such a deeply profound and powerful thought. Like every one of them carries the image of God. Every one of them has a, a, a purpose and a calling and a, and and a reason for existence, dreams. And uh, I think it's sobering and it's humbling because I, I agree with you. I look at the world through a very self-centered perspective. How does how does your attitude, how does your thing inconvenience or impact me? And does it help me get where I want to be? And that's that's not the biblical way of seeing people. So mm-hmm. I think it's a really good thought. All right. Well, we, our final segment today, we did have a question come in. Yes. So this one says, greetings. My question is on Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. The scene is in Bethany. I love the way that this phrase there. In the house of Simon the leper, Jesus and his disciples are reclined at the table. A woman enters the room, probably Mary, and pours uh, Mary Magdalene, by the way. Yes, yes. Not his mom. And pours expensive ointment on Jesus' head. Is the woman, Mary, doing this act in accepting the fact that Jesus is going to die? Is this the first act of accepting the death of Jesus in the Gospels? the disciples' reaction is also puzzling. Did they first accept the pouring of the ointment for the burial of Jesus and then and then deny the burial by wanting to sell the ointment and give money to the poor? I might be reading too much into this passage, but it's always puzzled me. And just to kind of read it really quick, this is the actual passage. It says, Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it over his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. I'm pouring this ointment on my body, so she has done it in, uh, to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in this whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her." Uh, so I guess to answer your first question, when he says she has done it to prepare me for burial, so the answer is yes. This yes. is this is done. It's it's looking forward to the the death of Jesus. Um, is it the first time that we see Jesus' death foreshadowed? No, that actually happens in the Christmas story. So when the wise men come, I the myrrh. I can't remember if it's frankincense or myrrh. It's one of the two. Myrrh. Myrrh. myrrh it's is a bur- a, it's a burial oil. Yeah, yeah, it's a burial oil. So you you wouldn't use that until. Uh, 
Jesus had already died. So even with that gift, it's being hinted at what's coming on. Um, but even before this, like we see Jesus, it's famous because I think we kind of make fun of the disciples, but I, I've, the more I've read and the more I kind of examine it, the more I give them a lot of grace because Jesus like intentionally speaks really vaguely sometimes. Yeah. And so when he's like, oh yeah, I'm going to die. And in three days later, I'm going to rise again. I don't blame the disciples for being like, man, I wonder what he means by that. Like, what's he trying to tell huh? us? When in reality, he's just trying to tell them, no, no, I'm, I'm going to die and yeah. raise again after three days. Um, so Jesus has been, has been saying this for a little bit now, um, but this is a really powerful moment. And so I, I think it's beautiful there, but yeah, it's not the first. Um, it is very much there for uh, the, the preparation of the burial. And I think so the, to get on the other points too, I think it's really interesting because A, um, the disciples, I don't think the disciples reaction is all that weird, I suppose, when you look at it from their point of view, because again, they're not thinking, oh yeah, Jesus is going to die. And so yeah. whether they're kind of just being idiots and they're not taking the obvious hints or whether they're kind of just like, like I said, Jesus is kind of vague sometimes. And so they're trying to figure out like, well, what does he mean by that? Um, or, and I'm sure this is part of it. They have the idea of the political Messiah still in their head a little bit. And so obviously like, yeah, Jesus isn't going to, he's not going to go die. That doesn't make any sense. Um, and so if in that situation, yeah, it is like, well, why are you anointing him with, for burial oil right now? That's, that's we can sell this and use it and we can do more things. Um, and then I also think it's, it's important that Jesus here says, cause this is one of the weirdest, most difficult scriptures to wrestle through as a Christian, where it says, for always you have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Um, and I think sometimes we get, we can get our priorities mixed up a little bit as Christians, where we think that like, yeah, our main, our main goal as Christians is just to eradicate sin. It's mm -hmm. to get poverty out of here. It's to make the world, it's basically like, we kind of think that our job as Christians is to make the new heavens and the new earth exist right here and right now. It's not, and yeah. it's, and it's never going to happen. Like it's that's, true. that's an impossible task to lay. It up doesn't mean we shouldn't care for the poor. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try and provide for means, but it doesn't mean it, but yep. we, and we got to be careful with there. Cause some people can take that as an extreme statement. Like, Oh, well, sweet. I don't have to do anything, man. No, that's not true at all. That's, no, that's not biblical either. Yeah. Jesus commands us to take yep. care of the poor. Um, but the point, I think the point he's making here is that the most important thing is, is Christ. The yes. most important thing is, um, is the message of the gospel. And it basically the idea of the poor you'll always have with you is that these aren't the, there, there are problems that are not going to be solved on this side of eternity. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we don't, um, sacrifice to help. That doesn't mean that we don't fight them, but it, it does mean to kind of have a realistic idea of, um, what our task is as Christians. And so what, and you see it in the book of Acts, right? Like the disciples, number one task is preaching the gospel yeah. is getting out there as many people. And even when it comes like, well, we can't, we can't like devote our full attention to both of these things. They appoint people um, to still take care of the poor, the widows and the orphans and things like that. But you can see them kind of keeping that as a first priority there. Yep. So oh, that's really interesting. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add there. No, I think, you know, I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Mary necessarily had in her mind, I'm going to do this in preparation for Christ's death. Um, and, and I have, I mean, we could probably read more into the, the passage and I didn't do much of that. I'm sorry. Um, but I do think it's an act of worship. It's an act, also an act of sacrifice, taking a, a, a very expensive and pouring it out. Um, because also anointing someone with, with oil is also a hospitable thing. Uh, when when you would enter into someone's house, they would anoint you with oil. Uh, they they would wash your feet. There there's the hospitality of it as well. Uh, and so it it is it is a much it is also a much more powerful symbolism in that regard as well. Like the the future prophetic side of things is his death. It's a symbolism of, of his coming death. But there's also some very 
uh, I'm laying everything down to take, to care for you, to serve, to love, to show my love um, in this regard too. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a fun question. Definitely something to wrestle through. And and I agree with you. I think as Christians, it's there's a lot to it. So there you go. It's well, okay that it puzzled you because it would puzzle me too. Yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting passage to work through for sure. Yep. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible, the first episode of season five. So thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, As a reminder, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a gift button in the upper right-hand corner. And thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.